Hello, folks. Welcome to this week's edition of What in the World. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of stuff that's been happening this past week, but uh, Ryan, uh, I first want to dig into this uh, this news that basically President Biden has ordered the intelligence community to have 90 days to investigate the origins of COVID-19. Now, remember last year, uh, President Trump had made this assertion that perhaps uh, COVID-19 had originated in a lab in Wuhan. At the time, many people had sort of treated that as if it was some Trumpian conspiracy theory. But was it so? Was it as far fetched? Apparently not. Uh, right now, just so I can clarify, uh, the president has stated that like we are basically unsure. Intellig- the intelligence community has stated we are unsure. We don't know if it was naturally occurring or an accidental sort of situation that occurred at this lab. But the intelligence community is doing an investigation over the next 90 days. Uh, and I think that's going to have some really interesting political consequences. I mean, when you I mean, when you look at what President Trump was saying last year about the U.S. sort of holding China to account, I mean, we were talking about holding China to account for, I guess, their inability to sort of, you know, initially contain the virus and also for fudging the numbers and hiding it for a bit. But I mean, if we find out that, for that for instance, that this originated in a lab, what do you think could happen? Ryan, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, this is pretty... This is pretty big news. Uh, I, I, it's not that big of news to me, but let me just give you the reason why. So the ODNI released a statement on Thursday, which is the day we're recording this, uh, saying that of all of the intelligence community, right, of the over you know fifteen different components of it, only three have issued guidance or assessments with low to moderate confidence. Only one of which said that they were leaning towards the possibility, the theory of this lab-based origination. Didn't say. They didn't say which part of the IC. And then two were leaning towards the um, more uh, zoonotic origination. So, you know, leaping from- Right, natural. You know, animal to humans. So what this says to me is like, I mean, there really isn't much to be said here other than the fact that the administration wants to dig deeper, which it should very well be doing. Um, so I, I don't think this you know, draws me any closer to thinking that it's you know more likely that this you know came out of a lab or was you know weaponized or maybe was a a mistake by the the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, but it is interesting nonetheless, and the United States will have you know this ninety day period, which probably isn't enough uh, to investigate. Uh, further. I mean, this. I mean, I think the current sort of a situation regarding you know this uh, this investigation, sort of at least in the public's knowledge, uh, was heightened after the Wall Street Journal sort of investigative piece uh, released, I think, earlier this week or just a few days ago. And I mean, they had said in the Wall Street Journal that about three researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, became sick enough in November 2019 that they actually went to hospitals. And uh, this was accordingly to a uh, undisclosed U.S. intelligence report. So and that's how it sort of came out into the public, probably initiating the president to uh, make that announcement. But I mean, uh, I mean, it has the potential to be big news if something like that is true. We don't know if it's true right now. Ryan, as you said, only one agency said they might lean that way. But I mean, right now it's a lot about we don't know. And we need to do further investigation, investigative work. But uh, 
I mean, it's not it's not a total, you know, like out of left field uh, thing, right? It's not it's not a total le- uh, out of left field thing. Uh, now that we're actually looking at it, and and I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, the intelligence community has been investigating this a lot. I mean, you know, when you probably first heard about it from President Trump, uh, it was very likely the invest the intelligence community was investigating it then too. Uh, but of course, you know, President Trump. Uh, he had a lot of uh, he had a very rocky relationship i'd say with the ic uh which you know hampered his ability to sort of speak on this stuff sometimes but uh it'll be interesting to see how this develops i mean stay tuned for the next three months yeah i mean now you just you know everyone's coming out of the woodwork saying that oh you know trump was right you know they should have given it more credence but anyway we'll see what happens there's nothing definitive at all um, so some circumstantial evidence, some intelligence reporting that is going to be further investigated. Um, but this is this is why you can't make national security a political thing, right? I mean, this is yeah. why you can't make intelligence a political thing because you want the minute you make it political, then people are going to start, uh, you know, disparaging certain pieces of intelligence. They might only agree with certain pieces of intelligence when their guy says it or their gal says it, right? So I mean intelligence is intelligence and hopefully like our leaders do not politicize it so we'll see what happens absolutely so moving on uh as we have been talking about uh israel palestine the middle east a very uh a very interesting situation going on there Uh, initially i would say president biden was getting some flack for being uh, somewhat quote-unquote disengaged at least publicly right like we weren't really seeing too many statements from the white house as this well i mean what i would now refer to as the fourth gaza war was raging uh the president had released some statements sort of you know claiming that israel has the right to defend itself and so on but i mean otherwise we were sort of seeing a lot of radio silence essentially publicly facing but uh i mean his press secretary the president himself they all stated that they were working on quiet diplomacy i think last week ryan right after we went off the air i think right after we ended the recording president biden came out into the white house and delivered a big speech on the israel gaza palestinian territories uh, situation asserted that you know they were going to be using quiet diplomacy to actually resolve this international conflict. And he sent the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, on this rapid fire, uh, you know. He's been going all over the place in the Middle East. He was in Israel. He basically, I think, warned Netanyahu not to engage in any evictions against the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, according to a report. Uh, He apparently had spoken to, I think, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, he had been speaking to the Palestinian Authority with Mahmoud Abbas, and uh, apparently he had indirect contact with Hamas. So certainly President Biden sent in the big wigs to sort of deal with this after those uh, initial, I think, two weeks really of sort of public silence. But again, you know, public silence is not the same as uh, quiet diplomacy. You can be very active in terms of quiet diplomacy, even if you're not talking about it much publicly. So we'll certainly see what happens. I mean, he was also in Jordan and Egypt meeting with leadership there because both these countries are stakeholders in this conflict. Um, but I mean, again, right, the, the Israeli Supreme Court is going to hear the case over Sheikh Jarrah, this eviction. Um, again, the Israeli government really has very little control over the outcome of the case. 
So, I mean, Israel has an independent judiciary. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I read is that the Israeli government's trying to get standing in this case in order to then try to come to some sort of deal. So the government's trying to have some sort of you know peaceful resolution to this case because really it's it's between um, a tenant and a land landlord with this eviction. And so the Israeli government is probably just as worried as the international community because they know right they don't want to go to another war. Hamas has already said that if the evictions were to proceed, were to be upheld in Israeli court, then they're going to re-engage. And so we could really see uh, another conflict resume. And so, uh, but for now, the ceasefire is holding. Uh, the United States clearly did some some great diplomacy behind closed doors. As did the Egyptians. Right. Oh, the yeah. Egyptians were very involved in brokering that ceasefire. The Egyptian government, they were very involved in brokering the ceasefire between Hamas and the Israeli government. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Egypt is playing a crucial role in this. And I mean, they really have set themselves up to be a broker of peace. And they've done it before in the in the Gazan conflicts. Um, and so it's nice to see that they're still maintaining that role. Yeah. And I, and I think perhaps, I mean, could this be the catalyst for the U.S. sort of re-engaging in an actual peace negotiation between the Israelis and the Palestinians? I mean, what we saw with President Trump and the Abraham Accords were really between Israel and its Middle Eastern neighbors, the Arab countries, right? But I don't really think we saw too much uh, that was going on with the Palestinians at the table. Certainly, there was likely some, you know, quiet diplomacy, as we all say, that was going on. But I mean, President Trump moving the embassy to Jerusalem and sort of uh, being very pro-Israeli. Uh, I didn't. I didn't really see too much of those negotiations happening with the Palestinians. But I think President Biden. You never know. They might try it again. But again, this conflict has. I think. I mean, it's been a failure. I think on every single president uh, for a long time, right? I mean, I think Jimmy Carter was the like Jimmy Carter helped make peace between Egypt and Israel. But I think ever since then, you really could not find a situation where peace was made between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Bill Clinton came close, but I mean, at Oslo, they just agreed to agree, right? They agreed to agree. They had a couple of summits after that. And then what do you get? The second intifada after the the Camp David summit in 2000. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's very promising seeing what the administration has done so far. They've elevated the Office of Palestinian Affairs. He you know, met yes. with Palestinian leadership and civil society. They've resumed aid that was cut under the Trump administration. So there at least is engagement, public engagement that mm-hmm. we didn't see in the last administration. That's a big step in resuming some sort of peace process. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, again, keep in mind, I mean, you know, you always see, I mean, when you're the president of the United States, sometimes you get blamed for every single thing that's happening in the world. Uh, and remember, folks, if something's not happening publicly, it can very much be happening quietly. So, Without a doubt. Um, all right, Andre, let's move to Belarus. We haven't talked about Belarus in a very long time. I mean, we talked about it in the early days of this podcast. Yeah. And it's basically been a year since protests erupted in Belarus and you know the events leading up to the presidential election in 2020. So for those of you who may not be familiar, Belarus is a post-Soviet country. It's a former Soviet republic. It's been led by strongman dictator President Alexander Lukashenko. Was he the 19- one with the dog statue? He was the one with the dog statue? That's Gurbanguly Berdimukhamedov of Turkmenistan. So Sorry. Well, he always comes up in the news every so often, but this is a different dictator. Um, Keep going, yeah. Yep. Anyway, so... So, so basically, the reason why we're talking about Belarus right now is because they 
created a fake bomb threat on a plane that mm. then was forced to land in Minsk, the capital of Belarus. Um, and it's interesting to note that this was not a Belarusian airline. It was not in in the airspace other than flying over it. It was going from Greece to, I believe, Lithuania. Um, Ryanair. Right, an Irish um, airliner. And so they were. it was forced to land and it was holding basically. So one of the passengers is a very well-known um, you know, media person, personality, activist within, within Belarus. Um, yes. I mean, yes. So he, he, he and his um, colleague run this, this media outfit called Nexta. It's basically a huge telegram channel and a YouTube channel that is kind of uh, the voice for the opposition, one of the many voices for the Belarusian opposition. And, you know, again, so there was this election in 2020 between Lukashenko, the current dictator, and uh, Svetlana Sikhanouskaya, who was the opposition leader. Elections and dictators, what an oxymoronic concept. I mean, it was completely fraudulent, and there was mass protests. The, the opposition leader had to flee, um, and so she's been kind of you know, saying to the international community, hey, we need to do something about this, and there have been mass protests, mm-hmm. repressions, jailings, killings, beatings, and so this is just another kind of development in the struggle for Belarusian democracy. And the international community has, I mean, really, you know, created a, a, a huge stink over this, as they should be, because, I mean, it's, it's insane. It's piracy. It's kidnapping. It's hijacking of an internet, like creating a fake bomb threat on a, a on A government plane. creating a fake bomb tr- threat. Right. A I government. Mean, exactly. Exactly. So it is, it's, I mean, it it's flies in the face of international law and international norms. And so sanctions are being developed by the EU and many other G7 countries. I don't know what uh, the president of Belarus was thinking, Lukashenko. I mean, he's he's been very successful in repressing these protest movements that we saw for basically the past year. Um, he's had many, you know, Putin has basically backed him. There are speculation that the Russian security services may be involved. There's no evidence of that. But if you look at, you know, analysts, they say that the Belarusian security forces really don't have the capacity to do this outside of their own country. Like, how did how did they get this guy on a particular commercial flight on Ryanair? Like, how did they track him down? There has to be something that's been going on, like some spy fare or something for them to be able to figure out that that plane was going to come close to Belarus. Yeah, I mean, it, well, you know, it, it seems like, you know, he the the this this um this journalist dissidents um, said that he thought that people were following him in the airport. And so it mm. looks like, you know, they just, they might've gotten lucky that this flight was going over Belarus's airspace and then they could forcibly land it. But I mean, it's, it, it really is crazy. Uh, actually the, the president of Belarus, Lukashenko will be meeting with Russian president Vladimir Putin oh, of course. Uh, to talk about a variety of things. And I, I imagine that it will be a very friendly conversation between the two. Cool. Interestingly though, the the girlfriend of this this man who was arrested is a Russian citizen. Um, oh. so she was arrested in Belarus as well, so she might be, you know, sent to Russia to maybe undergo some sort of charges. I, I do want to go into Biden Putin at Geneva. That's going to be coming up soon. But yeah, this situation is very disconcerting. I mean, if you watch the video of this guy, quote unquote, confessing his crime, you can easily tell that you know he is being coerced. It's scripted. He's being forced to do this. Otherwise, he will die. Right. Like, I mean, this is a person that I think the Belarusian government wants to die. Right. I mean, like when the, I mean, good grief, they send a fighter jet to intercept that plane, a fighter jet 
to intercept a commercial airliner. Like, and apparently, like many witnesses, you know, in the plane said, like, you know, he he knew that. Uh, I mean, for him, this was the end, right? I mean, like he knew sort of that this was quote unquote the end of his freedom, and so on. And like, yeah, I mean, he'd been living in Poland, I think, since 2019. But, uh, geez, what a, what a scary situation. Also, the precedent it sets, right? Like, I mean, what if some dissident or someone, like, what if some Taiwanese official or some Hong Kong dissident or the Dalai Lama or something flew over China on their way to the United States or something else, right? If they flew on like Cathay Pacific or something, like can the Chinese now send up their fighter jets and intercept these planes and arrest these people and execute them? Well, no. Well, I mean, I they, they I could, but they'd be, I mean, completely violating all you know norms and laws you have. Which is, they I, exactly. would. But but look at what Belarus did. Look at what Belarus did. It it really is astounding that I, I mean I. It really kind of shows that he's confident in his own position. This doesn't, at least to me, seem like a, a position of weakness that he's operating from. I mean, yes, of course, there's you know he's worried about the opposition, but doing this, flying in the face of you know every sort of law and norm we have, is means that he's confident that he can get away with it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, but like, I mean, look, like Belarus. I mean, with all due respect to the Belarusian people, it's a small country. It's not. It's not that powerful of a country. Like, imagine China. Like China doing this in the face of international. Norms. It's not like they're not already defying international norms, but like, imagine if they were to do this. That's a good point. Like, like what would what what would like if the Dalai Lama was flying over, uh, you know, happened to be flying over China or some part of China. Uh, as he was flying to give a speech in Los Angeles from India, right? Like, could they have a jurisdiction to like arrest him? Could they pull a similar stunt? Who knows? I mean, they easily could. So, I mean, this is again. So, I, I imagine there are going to be very, very you know strong actions by the West to kind of condemn this. Um, but again, you know, Belarus is kind of a crucial pathway for Russian gas going into the Europe, and so it implicates a lot of things. You mentioned the. The Biden-Putin summit, which yes. is happening in June, right after the G7, um, I'm not sure how that's going to actually play out. I mean, really, you know, there, there's not a lot of cooperation happening right now. I mean, there's these diplomatic tit for tat, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, of course they'll, you know, probably have a fairly long conversation. Uh, but I can't imagine it's going to be very constructive. Yeah. Interestingly, fun fact, Geneva was the site of Reagan and Gorbachev's first summit in 1985 after Gorbachev took power after a succession of three Soviet leaders died. Anyways, fun fact is over. But yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with, you know, U.S.-Russian relations because, I mean, right, Biden called Putin a killer uh, maybe a few months ago or something. Uh, you've seen the deterioration of U.S.-Russian relations uh, obviously, President Trump and that Russia connection was, I mean, the subject of an entire impeachment trial. And uh, right now you're seeing a, I mean, I mean, while President Trump maybe perhaps publicly might have been sympathetic to Russia and or Putin in certain ways, right? Like he wanted Putin to like him and so on. The intelligence community, the defense, you know, sector and all of that, we were not friendly towards Russia, you know, for the last couple of years at all, right? Like we weren't. And I think with what's happening with Ukraine and so on and all of the cyber stuff, it'll be a very interesting meeting uh, to observe as well, in addition to all the Belarus stuff. Uh, but I mean, we'll have more about that, you know, coming up in the next few weeks because that the, that summit's on June 16th. So, yep. All right, Andre, I got another one for you. So we again, something we've talked about in the past, Ethiopia, the Tigray region uh, of Ethiopia so the, the Biden administration has condemned the Ethiopian government, which has basically been 
you know, ethnically cleansing and just clamping down on this region. This this region in Tigray is a home to the TPLF, which is basically this semi-autonomous government that was leading the country before a civil conflict. And so the the Ethiopian government and Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed have said that you know they're they're treasonous. They've been attacking government forces. Tigray has been you know this government in, in Tigray has said that you're just massacring people. You know arrests. Uh, the UN has said that they're on the verge of famine, and so the U.S. is now restricting foreign assistance, both um, you know economic and security assistance, given the human rights challenges. Uh, and I mean, it really is it's it's quite sad. We, we've seen thousands killed, two million people displaced in this region. And interestingly, Eritrea, right, the border country uh, to the north, uh, which was in a you know a bloody conflict between Ethiopia, was supporting the Ethiopian government and clamping down on Tigray. Um, and they denied it for many, many months until it basically came to light. They couldn't deny the evidence. And so um, really just a, a, a terrible situation on the ground there and, and something that the, the US is, is paying attention to, which I find to be a, a great step in the right direction towards the US maintaining human rights abroad. I mean, basically, Senator Chris Coons, I think, went to Ethiopia maybe a few months ago. And Chris Coons, as we know, the Delaware senator holds President Biden's former Senate seat close ally of the president. So that's obviously a signal. But uh, folks, I mean, we've been, we've talked about Ethiopia a bit, this whole Tigray region on what in the world in the past, uh, probably not as recently, though. But I mean, we had that, I think that episode in November with Dr. Sean Roberts, I think, very Terrence, Terrence Lyons, Terrence Lyons, sorry, Sean Roberts did the Uyghurs uh, episode, also a great episode, but Terrence Lyons, Dr. Terrence Lyons, uh, and then we had that episode with him very shortly after this conflict initially broke out. Then, uh, I mean, you know, that was back in November. So, Ryan, how has that conflict sort of played out since November? How has it changed since that episode? I mean, you mentioned two million displaced. Uh, but like, are, are there two active sides right now? Or is it more the Ethiopian government has gained victory and they're now clamping down on all forms of dissent? Uh, I mean, that's you, that's precisely what's going on. Is is that the government's been able to completely repress this region, and so and that's why we're seeing these just massive human rights violations because they're they're able to kind of you know act freely mm-hmm. because this government doesn't have the capacity to go against the the Ethiopian government, which is fairly strong, right? It's one of the the, the larger countries uh, on the continent and one of the stronger militaries and security service structures within. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, again, right, because they view this as a treasonous government in this region, the government of Ethiopia, they've been kind of just doing as they please. And it's, I mean, really just astonishing to see. Uh, I encourage all of you to, you know, first and foremost, listen to our episode with with Dr. Lyons. It provides a great overview about the conflict, um, about the struggle between these uh, these kind of these ethno-national factions. Um, but also uh, there's some great reporting about it. And it's really just very, you know, devastating reporting, but it, it really paints a, a very a complete picture about the situation on the ground. Yeah, it's it's a very good episode. I recommend you all to sort of, you know, go in and watch it. Well, listen to it. Uh, watch us now because we're doing video now. But uh, yeah, I mean, Ryan, is there really anything else that's been going I mean, obviously there's plenty that's going on all over the place. But is there anything else of note that's been going on lately? I mean, you, I, I would point out to you folks, I mean, there's some interesting stuff happening with social media in India, uh, 
obviously there's always some intriguing stuff happening, you know, in Colombia with the, I think the protests that are occurring right now, but what else is happening, Ryan? Is there anything else we want to sort of cover before we close up? Yeah, I really just want to mention five ambassadorial nominations by the Biden administration, uh, five very crucial countries uh, that have finally now will hopefully once they're, you know, confirmed have ambassadors. The first is uh, Nick Burns is going to China. Good. Former Good choice. Senior, Good choice. Ser- right, senior Foreign Service, former ambassador to NATO. Um, great pick. He'll be someone who will work very well uh, with, with Tony Blinken. Um, we have Eric Garcetti going to India, uh, the LA mayor. That's intriguing. Well, I don't. <laughs> okay. Like, I mean, why? Like it's just a it's just like a political like it's probably a political pick, but I mean we had we, I mean Eric Garcetti is a, I mean he's a mayor of a big city, the second biggest city in the country, Los Angeles, but India, like I mean India is a very important country for Joe Biden right now and the United States in general, so I would have figured out I would have figured that like another Nick Burns style person might have gone to India, but yeah, interesting okay. pick. Um, and then for Japan we have Rahm Emanuel. So former Chicago uh, mayor and also Obama administration official. Interesting pick. Chief of staff to right, Obama. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that at least, you know, makes he's got a bit more, you know, experience in the world of of international affairs. Um, but again, Japan's another Well, LA's LA is a very international city, by the way. So don't get me wrong. As a mayor in local government, you're always, you know, dealing like Los Angeles, for example, bilateral relationship with like Mexico and the border cities. Uh, they manage one of the biggest ports in the country that, you know, ships in things from the Indo-Pacific. So, I mean, there clearly is some right. international stuff that's going on with a global city like Los Angeles. But it's, it's still a weird pick. To, it's still a strange pick to me. Some people might disagree with me, but I mean, I like, yeah. I, I, so we also, for Israel, right, which has not had an ambassador during this this recent escalation, Thomas Nyes has been um, tapped for the ambassadorship uh, to Israel. He is a former, um, you know, investment banker. Was COO of Morgan Stanley. Uh, also served as Undersecretary of State for Management, um, and so he's, you know, been in the in a administration before. Has that experience? But um, a, an interesting pick um, for for the Israel ambassadorship. Um, I, you know, yeah. I, I'm not sure how Netanyahu is <laughs> going to take it. Not sure he's going to be very happy about it. But Netanyahu might not be there for why? Why? Why isn't he going to be happy about it? Um, I mean, he, realistically, Netanyahu wouldn't have been very happy with any pick that was more flexible on the two-state solution side, which anyone from the Biden administration is going to be more flexible on that just because that's the policy perspective, the policy approach for the administration. And so, but I mean, this in particular, I think, I mean, it's it's different than, you know, having, you know, I, I think Tom Friedman under the Trump administration who, you know, at least... Who had literally zero experience? Um, he, you know, Tom Nides at least has considerable experience, way more experience. And then finally, I'll just mention Ken Salazar, uh, former senator from Colorado, to be ambassador to Mexico. A very important re- relationship to our southern border. Um, I think it's a great pick. So aside from Nick Burns, it seems like a lot of these folks are like political picks, political appointments. Most of the larger countries are political appointees. I would have thought that it would have been the smaller countries who would have had the political appointees and the larger countries would have had the career officials who know their stuff, who've grown up in the foreign service. Not that the current ambassadors don't know their stuff, but it's just like, I felt like that would have been the way. Listen, every administration 
has it basically done this way. You have, and in this, at least yeah. in this administration, there seem to be less political appointees than senior foreign service members going into these ambassadorships. Um, but I mean, this again, it, it wasn't unique for Trump. It's not going to be unique for Biden. I mean, every president nominates donors, people in their political circles, friends even, to be ambassadors mm-hmm. to a variety of countries. And the particular cushy ones are like France, the UK, the EU. Those are like the ones that are go to like the, the highest donors. But this is inside baseball for all of you. I mean, this I probably not that interesting. Um, but I mean, this is what's happening. Uh, these are, you know, fairly good picks, particularly the China pick is very strong. Yeah, the China pick's very strong. And I, I'd say Japan's pretty strong as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we'll see. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, when the president wants to deal with these countries, he'll probably send in secretary of state or someone like really high up to deal with them, right? With these negotiations. So yeah, I mean, they've got they've got great people uh, in the State Department on the NSC. It's a very strong national security and foreign policy team. So do we have a Russia ambassador? Uh, so it's actually the uh, maintained on from the the Trump administration. He was deputy. Really? Yep, um, Ambassador Sullivan was deputy secretary of state. But when John Huntsman left, right, the former Utah governor who was ambassador to Russia, also ambassador to China um, before, uh, he left. He wasn't, you know, getting very far. Um, so Sullivan went over to Russia. And I think they said he's going to stay there for the foreseeable future. And it's fairly rare that you have holdovers in these very, very important ambassadorships. Uh, but again, he seems to be doing a fairly good job. He was recalled. He didn't actually leave. Because Putin like wanted him to you know go back to DC to have consultations, ignore that he doesn't have to go back, and so yeah, I mean we'll, we'll see what happens with Russia. He'll probably be at uh, the summit with Putin. Wouldn't be surprised if he were there. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see. Well, folks, we have some good content coming up, some great guests, uh, some really interesting conversations. Uh, we'll sort of announce those when they're ready to actually release and once we've recorded them. But uh, a lot of content is actually coming out this month, so stay tuned. And on Monday, actually, we have a North Korea episode coming out So with Dr. Sumi Terry from the Center for, well, CSIS. So that, that that's a great episode. We're going to explore the Hermit Kingdom. Yep. All right. Okay, folks. See ya. See you next week.